Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. From Adult Swim headquarters at William Street West in Burbank, California, this is Matt Harrigan with the Adult Swim podcast. Today I'm talking to co-creator of home movies, co-creator of Metalocalypse, Brendan Small. Everyone wants to know what's up with Metalocalypse. Let's find out. Never been here. I haven't been here. I haven't had. I mean, when 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 we were finishing or doing the ending of, you were Met- not finishing it. When we were not finishing Metalocalypse, we only talked to Georgia. We never. There was no reason. I've never been. I've just heard that people come here and pitch stuff. Yeah. So I I haven't seen it. It's. Uh, I'll say this. It's very similar to a lot of offices I've seen. Doors and walls. Doors, walls, fluorescent lights—the things I try to avoid. Have you been to William Street? Yeah. It's Why would you have come there? Um, Back in the day, did you come to that seafood boil? Yeah, yeah. I was—I remember that. That was a really—you know what it was? A seafood boil. First of all, yeah, is an exciting thing if you're nowhere near the south, right? And if dangerous, it's well, it's exciting because all that stuff sounds tastes good together. Yeah, potatoes. Corn, crawfish, crawfish. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's really good. I really like uh, Southern food a great deal. So, I uh, I just like that it's just th- thrown in a bucket, boiled, yeah, and then tossed onto newspaper. The error that people make is that they don't put in enough seasoning, and then it's just boiled. But it's not like spicy. It's not. Yeah, you know. I went to um, New Orleans past this past uh, mm-hmm. winter. Yeah, because my wife and I will pretty much only travel on the off season of any place because no one else is there and the right. weather the weather's terrible but yep. i'm like lithuanian irish so oh. i was born in like a the dark the dark yeah i was born in a closet with like overcast and humid and that's where i because my skin is bluish yeah um but i will i love going to uh to places that, that are like overcast like new orleans in the gothic rainish rainy mm-hmm. you know creepy <clears throat> macabre uh voodoo uh, so where are you from? Lithuania, but where are you from? I'm from Illinois, Springfield, oh. Illinois. Land of Lincoln? Land of Lincoln. Nice. Yeah. People must get sick of that living there. Um, well, you know, they're just tired of emancipating people constantly. Uh, no, but it's a, it's a, that was a, it was like a Norman Rockwell kind of upbringing of, yeah. you know, I really could like skip over to a creek and, and if I woke up early enough, I could catch crawdads. Your overalls? <laughs> yeah, and it's just one straw from hanging from my mouth, and I could walk to the candy shop, and spend a quarter on candy. It was really like I grew up in the 1950s yeah. until I moved uh, to Salinas, California. Why'd you go to Salinas? My dad works in the produce industry, so uh, fertile. Yeah, the fertile California Valley is the fertile crescent of California. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the Salinas Valley, um, and as my old manager says, my father represents lettuce. What does that mean? <laughs> I don't know. He's like a manager of lettuce? He's manager of lettuce. Yeah. You want to get lettuce? You talk to me. 
So, um, so yes, yeah, so that's what he did. So we, so imagine from going from, I mean, Salinas is like John Steinbeck. It's like oppressive. Um, you will be betrayed by the end of the day. Uh, that kind of a world, but it smells of fertilizer. The whole place smells of shit. You know, the whole thing, the whole place smells like they're trying to get us out of there. Right. In some way. And uh, that's where I sat and learned how to play guitar and got into comedy and all that stuff. You sat in shit. I sat basically in, uh-huh. a, in a pile of cow shit. And, and then you grew. And I grew. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. It all worked. As it turns out, I needed it. Yeah. Yeah. Fertilized. Sure. How is your hearing these days? It's too good. You didn't have any ill effects? No. Really? No. Do you play with I play with I, I play with in-ears. And you can kind of still... I mean, you still need to hear stuff. You still need to hear it loud. But I can contour the frequencies so I don't have bad frequencies. But now I notice, and maybe it's because I'm getting older, that there are certain frequencies that I hoped would have been, uh, like the cilia would have been dissolved at this point, And I'm still hearing like things like I, I hear too well. I you have it. great hearing. I have, yeah. My senses are like, and this I, I find in people in comedy and stuff is that they're a little too, their senses are a little too good. Yeah. It's You're annoying. sensitive. You're sensitive, yeah. But uh, but it's uh, you know, you're in a state of irritation all the time because everything is irritating. How was uh, Comic Con? You had a big home movies panel. Oh, that was fun. Was that fun? You know, I what saw it was? your name in uh, yeah, big font. Yeah, yeah. It was uh, it was it was really nice. So there was no reason for us to do this other than to go. Hey, we never do this. Everyone's around, and and we all have a a strong affection for the show and the time that during while we made the show. So. So uh, somebody said, hey, will you do this? Will you do this? And I was like, sure. What do I care? It'd be nice. And it'd be nice to see Lauren and Benjamin and Melissa. And I keep in touch with, with uh, Melissa a lot. And Lauren will say hi every once in a while. But Benjamin, I don't get to see as often. And so we know that the four of us, if we get together and wax nostalgic about the old days, it's masturbatory. But in front of a room of 2,000 people, I guess it's okay. So that's what we did. <laughs> and uh, just talked about, like, you know, People were interested in you being masturbatory in front of them. For a short amount of time. Yeah. How long was the panel? Hour. What did you talk about? Uh, We just talked about like the early days and what a disaster it was. Because movies. Yeah, because we got canceled twice with the same show, which is kind of an interesting thing. Because uh, it started off on UPN. I don't know if you remember this. This is like before Adult Swim. So this is so this is this is like as Adult Swim is being probably just a twinkle in, in. in the eye of Lazo and uh, Linda... Linda Semensky. Semensky. Yeah. Linda Semensky <clears throat> and Kaki Jones. Mm-hmm. And we had been canceled after doing five episodes. And the, the nature of our cancellation was that not only did be, everyone tuned in, and then they quickly said, this is not for me. So you can track all those things. Like the overnights back in those days, you could track... How many people were tuning in? What year out? would this have been? 90, 99, 20 99. years ago. Wow. The year oh, of the shit. Phantom Menace. Yeah. Okay, and that's the, that's the reason for the Comic-Con exactly. panel. Exactly. 20 years. Nice round number. So you put up five episodes. Everybody yeah. tuned in and tuned out. Tuned in, immediately tuned out. Said, like, okay, not for me. And so we got, like, the overnights the next night, and we just talked about this. And, and, and they said, this is a particularly specific disaster. That, was a disaster? Th- that you had no, yeah, it was because you've got eyes on your project, you know, and our show was so conversational, sloppy, and I mean, this is all deliberate. It's not like we didn't know what we were doing. This is what we wanted the show to be, 
conversational, quiet, people not raising their voices, <laughs> spaces of air, right? long scenes, and uh, just character-driven and lots and lots of improv. And people were just like, I don't know what this is, and I'm not interested in this. And I'm not interested in, in what it takes to probably get this show, which is like recalibrating completely of your meter, of your, of your tempo. You know? There wasn't a show that had that sort of cadence to it. Dr. Katz was the only show, and I don't know that, but but for some reason that was making sense in a Comedy Central world, but not necessarily in a UPN world. UPN is a strange story. Is that I guess it was kind of founded by a guy who did Chris Craft or Cross Craft, whatever. The boat? The boat, yeah. Yeah, Chris yeah. Craft. Chris Craft, yeah. Beautiful, gorgeous boutique boats, right? right? I could, I could start a network. Yeah, start a network. Hey, we know what boats are. We understand the waves. We can entertain people. We know how to throw money into something that starts leaking immediately. Yes. It's a similar <laughs> paradigm. Yes. Well, they know how to bail. They don't know how to bail you out, but they know how to watch you sink. And that's what they did with us. But, the, you know, they gave us a shot, and it was the cartoon boom of 99 is what I call it, because so many different shows. People find out that you could, like, post-South Park, you could do things on the cheap. Not everything had to be Simpsons and six months overseas and this, that, the other. And you could kind of do a homegrown show. And so... So Tom Snyder Productions, that's what the company was originally called, the guy who did Dr. Katz and all that stuff, and um, found a way to make something have the illusion of animation, but what it was doing simply was squiggling, and it was the kind of show that you kind of needed Dramamine to enjoy. It was always moving. Always moving. Then we got rid of that once we got. So we were canceled five episodes in, and they said, goodbye, good day, and we said, thank you for the opportunity. And that was really quick. I was 23, 24, and very quickly I had a possible show, and I didn't. And then, and you had everyone, everyone's eyeballs, and everyone yes. rejected it. Yes. So it was worse than it was it almost was, the worst case scenario because you had an opportunity and it was gone. Yes. Yes, and it, a lot of stuff happened because because this was a network, an actual not a cable weblet, but an actual network. Even though it was a junior network. We were treated like a real show. So we use the term a real show very often to compare our show to something like, we should do this because that's what a real show would do. So we would say those kinds of things. But what, um, what happened like a real show was that they reviewed us um, in like the Associated Press. So, so at some point I did like a press junket. Like, you know, they fly you to like first class to, to Hollywood, did a huge press junket at like the Ritz-Carlton and I was like, wow, this is what it's going to be like yeah, forever. Right. And, and, and so afterwards, you know, a week later, maybe two or something, leading up to the premiere of the show, we got like a telephone book stack of press. And it said, like one would say something very flattering. The next article would say like, hey, this is show is... It's Woody Allen-esque. It's got this. It's got these kinds of elements. It's got this kind of stuff. Oh, and then I like I go, wow, they get it. They understand the show. And the next one say, this is a disaster. Don't watch this. What? Oh, boy, will this never end? Oh, please take this show off the air. And I realized, like, what am I doing? I'm sitting here, like, having, like, a bipolar episode just reading articles when the truth is that, and this is this is what I think about being creative, is that the truth is, at some point, after each project is finished, you kind of, I kind of agreed with all the bad reviews and I kind of agreed with the good reviews in that, yeah, we did nail that thing. And you're right. We totally missed the park, the, the, the mark on this other part. 
And I realized I kind of know all this stuff. What do I, what can I do to avoid this stupid thing? Cause I, it's too late to change anything. All I can do is, is kind of finish a project and say, well, what worked and what didn't and, and what could I do next time to make it better and make it land? Because ultimately, ultimately we're trying to, to have a conversation with people. What do you mean? Your show was having a conversation with people. Well, you're trying to start a conversation, uh-huh. I think. I think that's, or you're asking a question, or you're saying, what would, what would happen if? And I think ultimately a show's got to have, so what, what is home movies about is the question, and I don't know that, that I could have answered it back then. Now I, at, while What's doing your answer it, now? My answer now is that this is a story of a kid <clears throat> whose parents are divorcing, and as his father left, he gave his son a parting gift, uh, this camera. And the father left to go start a new life. And the son wasn't really part of that life. And so the son, this eight-year-old kid, is his life is spinning out of control. But he can control everything inside of this little viewfinder. He can tell people what to say, what to wear, how to behave. He can just micromanage every moment of what life is. And through that, he gets some kind of control. The end of that show is that he realizes that the family that he didn't have is the family around him. And that he doesn't need the camera to white knuckle life it can he can just let it happen so that's the arc of the show that's what the end of the show is you didn't realize that at the time i knew it at the end at the end at the end at the last couple seasons i started understanding what the show was but in the meantime i thought we this is a very small show with like you know five people in it and we just kind of talk to each other it doesn't sound funny and it was so funny (laughs) what how does that work how did, uh, well, I don't know. I mean, does everything have to start with like a comic notion or does no. it have to be a character notion? I, that's probably a good lesson, right? Well, I think, I mean, when I think about the things that I enjoy, sure, there's like just flat out funny stuff that's just like bewilderingly amusing and absurdist. And I really, really enjoy that stuff. But I also like a grounded land, a grounded human story where someone is, is, uh, experiencing something so i think about albert brooks i think about like even what is it like wes anderson like early stuff like bottle rocket was an influence on that thing too and um bottle rocket was an influence on home movies yeah what a great movie yeah it's a really great movie yeah i guess now that you mention it of of course yeah i i also think you know it was just people that uh were sensitive and trying to disprove their sensitivity constantly but also there's a weird thing where everyone's being nice to each other too and it's really ridiculous that when you see a show or some kind of a thing where people are just being nice to each other it it does something that's where i think it's like human and connective so um not all comedy needs to be that and the show after home movies definitely was like an exercise and something completely different but but ultimately has similarities so different from each other. Yeah. But why, why should I make the same show twice? First of all, it didn't work for UPN. It got onto Adult Swim, and it was never really like... It was kind of a, a redheaded stepchild in that it didn't really fit into the Aqua Teen world. It doesn't it didn't seem fit, like it would fit. Yeah, it doesn't seem Except like it would fit at all. Except for the DIY yes, style. exactly. But we got four seasons. They, you know, 40, is that 40 episodes? It's 52 altogether, I mean, including the first five. Mm. So we like picked up right where we left off not too long after its cancellation. So it almost felt like a month or two passed, and then we were back in business. So it was a miraculous thing that happened. So for a month, you were down, you were depressed, and then you got a call? Yeah. Your phone rang. My phone rang. It wasn't much. Yeah, it was like a, somebody's phone called somebody, and it uh-huh. got to Lauren, and then it got to me, and then uh-huh. we all kind of said, hey, are, is this real? How can this happen? 
how's this possible? And I didn't believe it. And then we started when we went back into production. How did it, how did Adult Swim, how did it work there? Like, did, was it Linda Semensky? It was Semensky and Khaki. And Khaki was very hands-on. And she was really protective and really gave a shit about the show. So she was protective of the things that we had already done. It was really interesting because we were sitting there exploring and exploring. And she's like, no, no, don't you get it? Don't you know what your show is? <laughs> she would tell us stuff like that. And she was right. And it's really funny because... I was learning to be a writer, and I wanted to – it was really funny because the first five episodes we did with outlines and no scripts. And so by the time it was canceled the first time, I was looking at my – I was looking at I was looking at my future saying, I've got nothing to show for this show. I've got this show. I'm a co-creator. I did write these outlines, but I don't really have – I can't show outlines to an agent or a person in, to get another job. So, so when we came back, we thought, okay, <laughs> let's, you know how a real show has scripts? We should do that. And we can improvise on top of those scripts. Why not? Yeah. So, so that was, that's the lesson I learned. So you wrote scripts, yeah. but you didn't stick to them. We, well, here's what we would do. So we would write a script. We would, we would you know, I was working with, um, when we came back, I, I wanted some more, heavy lifting, funny writers that were better than me. So I, I called a guy named Bill Broadus, who is still around and probably one of the funniest joke writers I'd ever met. And he would hang out at this comedy club that I would hang out at. And that's how I got into this whole thing was doing standup, transitioning from music into standup. And my roommate at the time was Eugene Merman. And this is before Eugene was like known or anything. He was just like the funniest guy I knew. And uh, this guy, Bill Broadus, who had been on like, uh, he'd been a writer on Dr. Katz. He had been on like, letterman and he'd been on like he'd been writing for a lot of different things but he and i sat down and we would just sit and talk at a coffee shop and just break story and and then this kind of wonderful healthy competition would happen where we're who can write the funniest script who can write the best jokes who can do this who can do that and i would laugh so hard reading his scripts and if i got him to laugh i would be so excited and it was really it was a really wonderful feeling and so what we would do is we'd read the whole thing and try to act our way through it. And everyone's going, okay, oh, I get it. Okay, so this is happening now. Oh, I see. Because no one would see it until the day, right? Oh. And, and uh, John Benjamin, you don't want him really prepared. You want him to like, see it for the first time, and you want his gen- – and, and, and without a doubt, almost every single time, he would improvise the ending of what we had already written to be like the last page of the entire thing. He'd like, leap to that and go, no, 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 no you can't do that. It's going to happen in 35 pages. But so we would read the whole thing. We would read each, we'd go scene by scene. So we'd read through the, the opening scene, which is always like the first scene, the most sluggish scene of the day. Would you read it all together? We'd read it on mic. We'd record the whole thing. So we had like, we were all in the same room and we had partitions in between us where we can, we had little like peepholes where we could see each other's faces. And if I need to look at Melissa, she's to my left, or Benjamin's to my left, Melissa's to my right, right in front of me, and whoever's in the last booth, I can't see at all. So we Separated to, so the mics don't pick up the other. So they, yeah, so they don't bleed as much, but there would be bleed indefinitely, and that would still go on as broadcast. But the truth was that if we could get, the, the trick would be, how can we get a performance that's alive? How can we allow it to be sloppy to talk over one another? to try to get another person's attention while someone else is saying something else and have to just stop and dismount and go, yes, what, what, what is going on? And then the worst stupid improvise, like the stupidest moment where you're like, ah, oh. so what was I saying before? And then like all that stuff ends up in the show. Was because, that recording room built for this show? It was already there. It was just, it looked like the, the kind of a room that you could probably put a drum kit and maybe a 
abandoned, like that size. Yeah. So it wasn't built for that show. It was built. It was already there for Doctor Katz. So again, wow. we're kind of like Doctor Katz was just finishing up as Home Movies was just beginning. So, so a lot of that cast would end up on our show, from Paula Poundstone to Jonathan Katz to the co- comics that they had become friendly with, like Emo Phillips. You know, people who I grew up loving, and so for me, it was a, it was a terribly exciting time. But um, but yeah, the recording was. And I hadn't heard anyone do any of that stuff but i have since then when producing my own stuff try to get actors in the same room whenever possible because i think you can get you can write a script you can get a script approved and all that stuff but a moment that is improvised or human or has a rhythm to it based on realistic conversation or or a person's instincts or improvisational whatever that would beat out a, a well-written joke. And we would go, all right, performance beat the joke. So we, we go, with, sometimes a sigh would beat out, a well-placed sigh would beat a cleverly written wordy joke, you know? And so Very as a writer, it's, it's kind of natural, but it, it makes you as a writer not white-knuckle every single word that you ever wrote. So it's kind of good to be able to go, you know what? We can trash it all if we need to. Were you, you weren't an actor before any of this. No. No, I wasn't. You were just a person. I was just a stupid person. Uh-huh. I would, you know what I would do? I was, I was at music school, and I was lucky enough to have friends that were at... So I went to Berkeley College of Music, but I was friendly with a group of people that, um, that, worked, that, that went to school at Emerson College. And so I would kind of get roped into acting in some of their stuff, or, or then I'd find myself at a computer writing, or I'd write music for them. So in one way or another, I just thought, I should be over here. I don't know. You were in the wrong department. Yeah. And then I started taking classes at Emerson and I started taking writing for TV classes where I had like a spec script by the end of a semester. So a lot of great writers came out of Emerson. A lot of great comics. Yeah. A lot of, a lot of funny people. Um, it, it, it forced you in a position of generating some stuff and seeing what it would be like if you, and I got really competitive at Emerson. I had a teacher named Mike Bent, Mike Bent, and he, I would be the, guy lingering around class afterwards asking questions about comedy and how this works and how that works. And he really kind of opened up my mind to how it did work, like just avenues, different, okay, who's got a joke for this, all right? What else? What else? And he just kept on going, what else? And uh, he also kind of, we, we were all meant to read our projects in front of class, and, and you could tell if it was working or not by how if people were laughing. And if a project, like, you know, if a sketch or something bombed in front of the class, he would go, all right. And he'd just point to you and go, what do you think? And so now you're, you're like in a writer's room, and you've you got to go, well, where I thought you were going to go is this. What I liked was that, and what I would do differently is this, something like that. So you have to have like a solution, and if you have a critique, you have to also like start it out with a compliment because everyone's fragile, and wow. they don't want to feel like advice. It kind of was. So that, that class really prepared me for a lot of things. And then plus that class got me on stage. So the second half of the class was sketch writing. And I personally was like, okay, I'm competitive. Everyone here sees me as a musician and not a writer, but I want, these guys are writing majors and I want to write funnier, more clever, more interesting stuff. Let, let me see if I can do this. And so what we had to do was write an hour long sketch show that we would perform at this place that's was known as the Comedy Studio. And that's where a lot of people got their start. A lot of great comics would come through there. But it was this third floor of a Chinese, Chinese restaurant, restaurant in Boston. Yeah, and it still okay. exists, but now in Inman Square. So Rick Jenkins would end up being this guy who 
was the proprietor there, and we'd all go, "Hey, can you give us? Can you give me some stage time? What can I do?" And he'd go, I've been yeah. "Hearing about the Chinese restaurant for years." Oh yeah, well, I mean, there's a crazy thing in Boston comedy history where Chinese restaurants and comedy clubs kind of are one and the same. The fuck? Why? I don't understand. But there's this room that was being unused in the third floor of the Chinese restaurant. It called the Hong Kong in Harvard Square. Again, now now not there. Now in Inman Square, and um, and Rick Jenkins has made a business of it, and he really, really is an important part of my life because had I not gotten stage time, I wouldn't have done stuff, and had not, and had I not done that, I wouldn't have met Lauren Bouchard, who saw me on a funny night. You were being funny, and he was there. I was being funny. The night before, I wasn't funny. The night after, I wasn't funny. He got oh, me on the funny night because I was, tr- I was trying to figure out exactly. It got me right in the sweet spot. <laughs> exactly. But you'd been on stage before as a musician. Yeah, but my relationship with being on stage was not a, it was a very shaky one. And uh, I had suffered from great paralyzing stage fright. I don't know if you've ever suffered from that. Now I don't. I have it right now. <laughs> um. <laughs> Yeah, well, there you go. So, yeah. I mean, like, just seriously, like, just mental and, and physical paralysis. Physical paralysis. Yeah. It, it, N- knee-knocking, shaking, and when I would do these juries at the end of the semesters at, at music school, you're supposed to have learned a classical piece, a, um, a jazz chord solo. Uh, they'll throw music in front of you and say, hey, read this, do this, do that. And there's five people behind a desk. And I am shaking like a leaf. And by the end of each one of these things, I would have each one of the teacher's eyes averted. And they would just want to get out of the room because I was causing them mental anguish. Because wow, <laughs> I was so physically Because I was so nervous, so physically. I don't know what it was. Like, I don't know if it's a genetic thing. My brother had it. But, um, yeah, but, but stage fright, I almost miss. I mean, I still have moments where I care. And that's the thing is you kind of want to have that a little irksome terror feeling, especially with stand-up, because there's no guarantee that it's going to work. Well, what about when you had to pitch a show? Because well, it seems like a combination of all those Yeah, shows. I think over the years now when I pitch a show, um, I glide through there and I feel like David Copperfield. You know what I mean? Like, But back then, we made the show. We didn't pitch the show. We just made the show. And I was put on the spot in a way, and I could somehow in character talk my way through stuff, and that was a little bit easier for me. So Lauren Bouchard saw you do comedy. Yes. And you finished. Yes. And then what happened? I got a call. Always got another one of those. Phones. It's always the calls. Uh-huh. I got a Nothing call. Nothing happened after the show. You just went home. No, but I knew. I knew that like Ron Lynch and Louis C.K. were on that show, and they were in town recording Dr. Katz. So I heard... Rick Jenkins once again nudges me and he goes, Hey, those Dr. Katz guys are gonna be here. And to us, that meant to like to me and Eugene and Patrick Borelli and Brian Olson and a bunch of these guys. We all knew that, that was that's important. It's the only show that's being made in Boston and it's and it's funny and we loved it. Yeah. So we and were, if you could get their attention. If, if somehow I could get their attention, then perhaps perhaps that's the like that little tiny rip in the in the fabric of the universe right. that I can punch through and find myself on the other side do you remember any of your set yes it was incredible so here's here's what i realized it was incredibly stupid and i was doing character stuff so whether or not i knew it i it wasn't straight stand-up it was me kind of commenting on stand-up and i got to kind of play two characters in one so i was this loud bombastic comic screaming about how much he likes ham and it just was absurdist and stupid and then um you find out my comedy teachers and in the audience it's really stupid and it feels like a first year comedian kind of does it but we really really committed hard 
and it was it was just silly, stupid. And then my teacher berates me, and I turn into this kind of flop, this wimpy creature who has to tell a, a sincere story. So you had a plant in the audience working with you. I had Ron Lynn. So normally it was pra- Patrick Borelli, my buddy, who's he works on Fallon, and he's a super funny dude. But um, but that night he was out of town, and Ron Lynch was there, and I thought, oh, you know what? This is almost like. If if these guys think I'm friends with Ron Lynch, I bet they're going to think I'm cool. Yeah. And what's the best way that I can fool people into thinking I'm friends with Ron Lynch is put Ron Lynch in a bit and Ron Lynch is like, "Yeah, I'll do that. I'll do whatever you want." You know. And and so he ah, he did a yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> he so, so he was up for it and thank God he was and he did a great job that night and and one guy was laughing harder than another at the table that I knew that the representatives of Dr. Katz were at. And this guy was turning purple laughing so hard. And I was kind of playing to that table, too. So it was an important, uh, important to have him there that night. I'm sure hearing him in the audience that night inspired me to lean in and be a little bit more obnoxious. He called you the next day. It wasn't the next day, but it was like <laughs> Rick Jenkins goes, I've got some good news. Remember that table? Remember the Dr. Cat? I was like, yes, yes, go on, go on. And he goes, well, they were asking about you. Next thing I know, they threw me in a booth, and they're like, Go. Go on, see what you got. And I just had to improvise a character and a world and talking to myself and talking to other people and I'd play some other character parts and stuff. Did you know, and you didn't know what the show was going to be. <laughs> it's really funny because we went back through this whole thing on stage where there wasn't really a mandate of what the show was going to be at all. It just kind of like organically formed. Lauren knew that UPN was looking for family shows. And he's just like, okay, family show. I got John Benjamin over here. He's going to be some kind of a guy. Uh, Paula Poundstone, she's going to be like somebody too. And and then that's all I got. Maybe you're a kid. That's what I think. I think you're a kid is what he said. And I'm like, I don't want to be a kid. I don't want to be a grown-up. And I just <laughs> thought, how would I play a kid? Well, if I were a kid, I didn't think of myself as a kid. I thought of myself as a... I took myself seriously. It's like most kids are take their their world isn't like you know a stupid cartoonish world. They take every moment seriously. I remember being moments of anguish, of pain, of humiliation, of of you know schoolyard stuff, and like ripping my pants and going, "Oh my god, this is the end! This is the end of me." Very so, dramatic. Yeah, it was very dramatic. So I thought that's kind of funny. And if I don't play it like a cutesy pie kid or something like that, then I can probably do it because I'm just grossed out by you know. Even though I didn't really alter my speech patterns or anything like that, I I knew that if I tried to be like precocious kid or something like that, there's I didn't want that either. I just knew I didn't want that. You didn't put on a, a high pitch. You had to make these choices. <laughs> well they yeah, well they would pitch my voice up and then as we kept doing it we stopped pitching it up. So years later you've made <clears throat> fifty two episodes? Yeah. And how was the experience I mean when did you know that that was turning into something more significant? It never did. It never felt like it was anything significant. It felt like I'm lucky to be working. I'm lucky to be able to have this thing. Nobody is watching it. I remember where we'd sit there in Boston and go, you know, the show was out. It was available. It was like at Adult Swim. And I think Lauren came back. He burst through <laughs> to the studio one day. He goes, and he's wearing a home movie shirt. And he has like a sandwich in his hand. He goes, I was just at a sandwich shop. Listen to this. The lady behind recognized my shirt and said, I know that show. This is like <laughs> like 20-something episodes into the show. And I go, oh, really? And he's like, yeah. So someone's seen it. And that was a big deal for us, that this show existed outside of this, like yeah. the four of us that were making it. <laughs> so it was a huge deal that someone, and this is seriously well into the show. 
and um, and they didn't say if they liked it or not. <laughs> they just acknowledged <laughs> come on, that it what existed. do you think? What do you think? <laughs> yeah, come on, what? You're supposed to say like, "Hey, I saw that show and it was really great," or don't say anything. But they said they they saw it, and to us, we were like, oh, "We're somebody." Yeah. We're like on Mount Rushmore, basically at this point. So no one really knew it, saw it, watched it until after it was done. And then it, so it ended. It ended, and it went on Blu-ray or DVD. Mm-hmm. Shelf Factory put it out, and we had a lot to say about it because we did like tons of commentaries and interviews and stuff, and. You know, we were done with the show at that point. We were moving on, but then it found an audience. But yeah, that's that's pretty much the story of home movies is that it never really moved the needle for us other than it gave us experience in making something and and having conversations, protecting the show, doing stuff like that. And now 20 years later, you're at San Diego Comic-Con and 2,000 people are in the room? Yeah, yeah. It was like a packed place. And I don't know if they're like seat warmers for the next place either, because <laughs> they could be like, hey. <laughs> it could be true. You think they were just waiting for the they're next They're like, yes, show. you're being nice. Go on. Yeah. There's like uh, the guy who co-wrote the new Spider-Man is going to talk. So that could be the case. So very different from your next project. Yes. Both of which left people wanting more. Mm. Did people want more of home movies when it ended? Or did they? No, I mean, the people not. have been asking since, since then. then. But the thing about home movies was that, to Adult Swim's credit, um, they said, "Look, we gave you fifty-two. So in the last season, we're going to do four seasons. I think Lazo said, This is it, guys. This is a this is like a gift, basically. <laughs> the show's not pulling what it needs to pull, but here's the last here's the last season. And so we said, Okay, we feel like that's probably the right move. We don't want to do this show forever, and we want to have like you know." We want to have a nice goodbye, and so that's why we wrote the show that the the ending of the show, which was that basically this kid is going through an arc. We do kind of learn who his father is. We do kind of learn that his father's like remarrying, and there's another kid on the way. We learn that this kid's got to at some point grow up, and he's got a pretty good family around him that's not too terrible. In fact, he really likes him a lot, and the future is very big and wide open. It's amazing because it's not a dark show at all. Yeah, but we talked about a lot of interesting stuff that was that that was kind of like the stuff that a kid would have to go through. Um, so, like his father again, introducing the father brought up a lot of interesting stuff because the father had to go through some like therapy stuff and bring the whole family in, and they had to relearn how to speak to each other in ther- therapy talk. And it's kind of a light idea, and it's really funny, and it's basically mismanaging anger and saying the wrong thing while you're gritting your teeth. You're, all the fury is still there. And I learned that through, through my parents that are now divorced. They weren't, weren't divorced Weren't then. divorced then, but they were going through marriage counseling, and they taught us all how to speak differently around them. As in, like, I feel that it would be in your best interest to do this, as opposed to you should do this. And so the word should ended up being a bad word in my house. And there's a whole episode based on that too. So, so it was, it would, it would flirt with that, but it was ultimately about creative friendships too, a creative family. That's what Metalocalypse would end up being. Yeah. A, uh, fucked up creative family. Was Metalocalypse a response then to home movies? No, I, I liked and still like home movies so much that I didn't want to rip it off. I did not want to go anywhere near it. And also, Adult Swim didn't really. They're like, "Hey, home movies didn't work for us. It didn't Let's do really, it again. We like it, 
do something else. And I thought, okay, I am in this world of being attracted to heavy metal. I'm in this world where I'm kind of pissed off that reality is existing, reality TV is existing, yes. and writers, these people who spend their life crafting stuff are just being thrown to the wayside while celebrityism is taking over. So I thought, what if the, so what if to, to show how pissed off I am, one of the biggest celebrities in the world, what if the Kardashians were a death metal band? And that's kind of where that whole thing started. Chris Pernoski, yeah, proprietor of Titmouse, yes, <clears throat> said to me that he thought that people were skeptical of a heavy metal-based show before it came out, um, because that... they thought it would be a parody. Spinal Tap. Stuff. Oh, I see. So you mean like the, the, the heavy metal community would think that, or we're parodying Spinal Tap? Some, one or the other. Okay. Well, I knew what <clears throat> I knew what a couple of the that, that maybe you weren't a musician or, may, or people who didn't know you said, "Here's someone who's gonna talk right. talk about metal who who doesn't who, know who's about this metal." Stupid hipster talking about the my beloved heavy metal. Right. So there's that. Yes. So I was very much aware of that being a a potential stumbling block. But the idea of a heavy metal show on Adult Swim to me made a, a ton of sense because it's somewhat counterculture at the time. There's a lot of fuck you and the show's there. There's a lot of like, I'm not even going to tell you a story. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to start a story and then I'm going to just go the other way. And I'm gonna, you remember that story we were talking about? It's not happening. <laughs> so I remember seeing that even in Aqua Teen where I was like, this is so wonderful. It's deviating from like narratives in a wonderful way that's making me laugh like crazy. So what's the genesis then of Metalocalypse? Genesis is, um, I was doing, so when I finished that show, I was just doing a lot of performing and, um, performing as in a band. Uh, no, not, comedy. not at all. I was, I was falling back in love with my guitars. That's something that was happening. I was realizing that I'm, my brain is dragging my body to a bunch of shows, a bunch of metal shows and a bunch of my guitar heroes. I'd go see like Ingve and Steve Vai and Satriani. And I'd see like, you know, um, Cannibal Corpse and I'd see all these bands and I, I don't know what it was, but this is something that was really exciting and metal had gotten heavier and better produced over the years. And, you know, you kind of, when you were at music school, so going back to music school at the time, wasn't that far away. Um, I had gone through a, a bit of a musical identity crisis, which is kind of what happens because I grew up listening to rock and roll and Van Halen and uh, lo loving like uh, Metallica and Slayer and King Diamond and stuff like that. But I also loved instrumental super shredders and all that stuff. And I put, I logged a lot of hours into the instrument. So at some point you just log the hours and it's somewhere dormant inside of you. So, so if I can, if I need to get up and running on an Ingve song, I could probably do it, you know, at this point, I feel like I could, you know. Mm -hmm. um, so what I realized is that I just was sitting hunched over my guitar going, I really enjoy this. This feels really nice. If I never do anything with this instrument, I will be happy sitting here in this chair playing it because it makes me happy and it's relaxing. And slowly but surely, as I am alive and I'm in this lifetime, I will continue improving if I keep this up. And who is this for? Nobody but me. And if that's the case, then that, that's fine. But Metalocalypse came, and I always thought, at some point, I'm going to do something with music. I did a ton of music in home movies, but it was all wonderfully sloppy. It was all like, fuck you, music school. Fuck perfection. This is a, my guitar's out of tune. This song is stupid. I'm rushing the tempo. And there you go. It's, it's a big middle finger to music school. Metalocalypse was 
All right, this is all precision bass. I really got to lock it all in. I got to make it work. Otherwise, I mean, because heavy metal musicians are intensely accurate. And, um, and I really love it. And that's why Metalocalypse was not necessarily about heavy metal from moment to moment, but it's surrounded by the notions of heavy metal. And even though I get to play at it, I, I have to love it in order to make fun of it. So you come to Lazo? With a yeah, I came to so to Lazo's credit, I'll tell you like I went, this is the pitch of of Metalocalypse. I, I call him and I said, "Hey, I think I've got oh, I did that music for Perfect Hair Forever right around that time." Right, and I turned it around really quickly, and everyone's always impressed. Beware you the do, wolf. Yeah, beware the wolf. Exactly. Yeah. Did you write that? The lyrics, uh, though, right? He, Lazo, and I and Malero wrote all the yeah, lyrics. Yeah, so you and, you, and they were nonsensical. Yeah, it was it was it was really fun. So I sat there and I beat out this thing in a couple days or whatever and they were all like everyone was like oh hey that's cool that's not cool and i remember the animation was really neat gandy did the animation that's right yeah. that's right so so that was hot like that was part it was this pitch was right on the heels of me having done that so people were like all oh, right you can play guitar you can do this you can sing and you can do all that stuff and uh and you can turn it around quick and i was like yeah i guess i can i guess that's something that i've learned over the years you can crank it out I can crank it out. I've got a bag of tricks at this point. So, um, and that came from while I was, I remember like those are muscles that you kind of have to learn because while I was making the decision to become a comedian, I was, I was interning in New York for a summer and I was interning at jingle houses. So the, what I learned about all those super talented jingle writers, they had two hours to turn a song, a demo around like half a day or something like that. And they had to do it quickly. And I was just noticing, like, oh, how do they do it? How is this? Oh, this guy uses these chords all the time. This guy uses these chords. This guy's really good because he can really just get, he understands his keyboard and get all these different sounds. Okay, those are all good tricks to have. So, wow, what a great internship. It kind of was. It, well, well, it unexpected. Made, it was unexpected in that it made me realize I don't want to do this. I want to do the thing over there. So I have to learn a new skill set for that. But all these tricks are, I'm going to try to stockpile these tricks away because I, I'm sure I could use them at some point. And during while comedy and home movies, I thought, I'm going to actually do a real music show, but I'm really going to have to lean in on it. And really, it's going to take a lot of time and effort and, and tedium and all that stuff. And so I finally, so after the <laughs> Perfect Hair Forever, Beware of the Wolf song, I called Lazo and I said, hey, I've got this show idea. It's about uh, like an extreme metal band, like a death metal band, but not just, I just don't even want to talk about what genre it is, but it's going to be heavy, heavy metal, like Cookie Monster vocally, kind of like Cannibal Corpsey sounding stuff but and i'm i'm uh i'm not sure i'm interested in having anyone understand anything anyone's saying on the show and lazar said well that's a good idea that's a green light right there i swear to god that's a conversation and then next thing you know i'm like writing the pilot wow and and then that's a good idea there's a green <clears throat> light right there that's pretty much what he said so to his credit i would like send him like uh pieces of music and he would send me some stuff and i was like yeah check this out check this out and this is what I'm thinking, and here's the theme song. So I was just, oh, that's what he said. He said, go write it up, write up the whole thing you just told me. And I go, you know what? I'm not going to write it up. What I'm going to do is try to figure out what this band sounds like, because if I can figure out what this band sounds like, I think I can probably make this show. Otherwise, I may be full of shit. So if I can figure out who Death Clock is, then I think I've got something. So Death Clock was the foundation. Yeah, so, sound so Tommy Blacho was, was around in the early days, and he was a really important part of developing the show, too, because he was like, he would be the only guy that would go to heavy metal shows with me. And <laughs> do you remember Tommy? 
Of course. Because I don't know, because you're hanging out with, with music people or comedy people all the time. That's, that's who my friend base was and is still. But not, uh, for some reason, a lot of comedians like soft, pretty music that makes them feel comforted. Wow. <laughs> and very few people are like, yeah, lean into the darkness. So, like, you know, Blacho is there. Brian Posehn would later come and write on the show. So, um, so we would, so we sat around and, and, uh, would develop and talk and, and I just realized I have to really write this pilot and it has to be tight and I have to like introduce five unique voices and Why five, I'll tell you because I knew I needed a drummer one. I oh. knew I needed a bass player kind of <laughs> it's heavy metal. I had to build a band. I had to build a band. Right. I knew I, need, I wanted a singer and then I wanted to be able to have guitar harmony. So two guitar players, but you couldn't have the singer also play guitar. I could have, but I didn't want to. I wanted him just to be vocals. And, and, and also I was thinking about cannibal corpse. George corpse grinder Fisher had such a commanding stage presence. We we're like, Oh wow. Look, it's a real serial killer standing there, whipping his hair around and all that stuff. So, um, so I just thought that's part of this Conan the Barbarian meets George Corpse Grinder Fisher would be Nathan Explosion. So that's why five. And I thought, okay, I'm not just writing for like they're one big voice that's kind of having an, an inner struggle constantly. And that's how you muscle through like a, a, a five people in one room constantly moving story forward. So the band is its own character and the characters in the band it's almost like the Brady Bunch, you know, when they run down the stair and they, then they go, hi, me too. I want to go, hey, me too. And they all kind of confirm the exact yeah. same thing. It's we, a lot like the Brady Bunch. <laughs> it, actually, it very much is. That's, so that's the thing. It is a family band show. It's about a bunch of, there is a mother, there is a father, there is a little sister inside of the band, but it's a family. Like you take away all the brutality, the blood and the vomit and everything, and it really is a family show at the end of the day. And all TV must be, mustn't it? What do you think the first scene that won people over on that show? I is? know that like the big bombastic thing where the where they do a coffee jingle in the first episode. People uh-huh. are like, I remember this, I remember this, I remember this. Because Duncan Hills. It's the Duncan Hills, exactly. So most of what we had to do was kind of base this on something that did happen. So the fact that like you know, we have eighty thousand, a hundred thousand people are traveling to the northernmost part of Norway to see a band play, you know, and in order to be that far up in the you know, in the Arctic Circle, you need to be equipped with a 12-gauge because you'll be attacked and killed by polar bears. This is a rough place to be. And they're there. why are they going there? To see their favorite band ever, Death Clock. And why is, what is Death Clock doing? They're playing one song, one song only, and it's a coffee jingle. So we go back to jingles, and it goes back to my world of jingle house writing and all that stuff. And I thought, oh, that's what the Sex Pistols did. They played one song. They made all these people come out for one song. Okay, Sex Pistols did it. We can do it. So if there's like some kind of historical truth underneath that, people get hurt at concerts. We'll just multiply that and make it cartoonish. Right? How, why would people even go if they're going to die? Because it's a it's an honor to die for Death Clock, you know. So all these little things started happening. I was like, oh, this is almost like I thought about you know the old Batman show, just saying you know same bat time, same bat this, and talking about Death Clock and Death Phones and and Clocketeers and Walt Disney and all this like huge, huge, grandiose stuff. How big can you make this? How Suddenly, big? it just explodes it explodes exactly and luckily blooming. with chris pranowski and uh and the late john schnepp and this whole team of ragtag lunatics we started we started just trying to one-up each other and so what we end up having at the end of this development process is scale 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 big 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 let's make this a big show 
Let's make it feel like cinematic. It's so big. See how big that house is? Let's put a guy next to it. All right, let's make that house bigger and let's make that guy smaller. Okay. How about the backgrounds? That's all Antonio Canobio. So Antonio Canobio is this, he's he's this born in, in France, artistic lunatic with this European vibe that I don't think you're going to get out of a lot of people. So the first thing he did was like, I remember describing Mord house, which is death clock's home as like Wayne Manor. Cause I think the first Batman Batman begins had come out and I was like, look at this, look at this. This is, this must be a place where the, and he goes, mm, I don't like any of that stuff. And I go, well, what would you do? And he comes back with a drawing of an upside down Viking ship. That's like bigger than Wayne Manor. And he goes, I just thought, wouldn't it be interesting to see an upside down boat, as a building and i said i'm really glad you're here because that's so much better than my idea and that's what production should be right i've got to come to the table with an idea and hopefully i'm begging you all to beat it with something bigger better cooler. assemble people who can elevate yeah idea, hopefully, wherever hopefully. they can in any place please my challenge to every person that walks in the room beat this idea with something cooler so you had tommy you had chris pranoski yeah you had john schnepp yeah and john would add the weird factor like super crazy cuts. And then Mark Brooks was um, is super important to the show too because he had this stand back and look at everything kind of vibe as like a story editor and a director and a writer. And he'd go, okay, we'd sit there, you know, as we all do at the edit bay because we're rushing, rushing, rushing. We have a big order and how many episodes can we get it done? What was and your order? Starting out, 20 Wow. So from like right out of the gate, 20 quarter hours. 20 quarter hours. No pilot. No pilot. I mean, I had written a pilot. Uh huh. And then I just thought, <laughs> you want to know? Okay, so here's how, here's how it, this is all Adult Swim related stuff. So, so I knew that, like, I, I had heard tale at this time, like 2005 ish, that they were just picking up 20. Like, it was the salad days of Adult Swim, it was the yeah. golden era of Adult Swim. And so I had heard that that they were doing these big orders. So Tom I was like, Tom goes to the mayor, just got a big order. Yeah. Tom goes to the mayor, oh. just got a big order. So Tom goes to the mayor factors back into this because I was thinking, I was talking to Chris Pronowski and they hadn't done a TV show yet. They'd only done like a commercial and a couple videos. So, and then like bits and pieces on like some, somebody else's project, but never their own show. So they're trying to make a name for themselves at tip house. And Chris is like, we will do anything to make this work. This show is cool. We think this is, this is the thing we should be known for. So I said, okay, I'm going to find out exactly how much what I think must be the cheapest show on Adult Swim is. So I go to Tim and Eric, and I said, can I look at your bottom line? And they said, sure. They open up this big book, and they go, boink, and they point to the bottom line. And I go back to Chris, and I tell him what it is. At the time, it was like 110K per episode, Mm -hmm. which is like, you can't do anything with that now. But um, but I was like, can't – I was like – 110,000 per episode. Okay, so I go to Chris and I go, can we do what I want to do? Because I want to make it grandiose and big. Because, again, I'm coming from home movies. Conservative, primary colors, cute. Everyone's being nice to each other. Everyone's being nice to each other. How can I make this feel like... I just want to... I want to be like a character actor, basically. I want to make sure you can't see who did this. I I mean, I want people to go like, oh, that guy? I disappear inside of this character. And that's what that show is. So... So Chris comes back and goes, I'll do you one better. We can not only do 110K per episode, we can do 109.99 and spread it across the episode, across the season. And I said, put it in writing and I will deliver it. And so I did. And and everyone kind of said, okay, that's it. Wow. Yeah. That was really smart. 
uh, presumably, right? It, well, yeah, like it. it was. Yeah, it you was. One under. We, well, the other thing was we had Metallica. And I think you may have helped me. Maybe either you or Malero, somebody, I think it was you, though. Oh, because Metallica had been on Space Ghost. They had been on Space Ghost, and then they just like sent a blanket message to adults. So I'm saying, we want to do voices on cartoon shows. So I knew that, again, if, if anyone's like me, to have your arms folded going, this show is so stupid. These stupid hipster assholes are making fun of my heavy metal. Mm-hmm. What if I have Metallica or Cannibal Corpse and King Diamond and all these other people from heavy metal? On the show. Their blessing. Implied. It's their blessing. They get to be funny. They're part of the joke. This is about this culture, and it embraces it. So, And that's how I felt, because I don't want to make fun of this, because cause I love it. And, I mean, I couldn't even make fun of something I didn't like for an entire show. And it's easier, maybe, to make fun of something if you know it really well. You know it really well. Yeah. You know the ins and outs, and, like, you know, about the guitar. You can make very specific jokes about the process of making music, about marketing music, about the being... And then also, you add to it, like, they're the seventh largest economy, and they're inept celebrities. They don't know what time it is. They don't know how to get out of this room. They, uh, they've never flown coach. And the nuances entitled. of the, the music, the, you know... Yeah. Speaking of that, I thought, well, why not even have the guitar playing be accurate on the show? Right. Again, this is where like I start losing my mind. So I go, all right. No one's. I've watched cartoons my whole life. No one ever gets the guitar right. Joe, Joe, seen the Pussycats. <laughs> they're doing this. They're right. like they're just flopping both arms in front of a guitar. And uh, well, were there other examples? I can't think. The, of I only thought about Joe again, the Pussycats, and then right. like maybe like American Pop, which was kind of like right. at least. They're rotoscoping, so there's an accuracy in that. Right. But that was a big movie for me, all that Bakshi stuff, which yeah. kind of came up in like, you know, how do we make this look like a Bakshi project? Um, because I love heavy metal, the movie. I love, you know, uh, Fire and Ice, American Pop, all those cool yeah. things that he did. People of human proportion, and that's why Death Clock is of human proportion, because they need to be able to play instruments. So, um, so those are all the things that I thought about. And then I also knew that home movies will get moved around a lot. And uh, at some point on a billboard, there was a conversation about a billboard, and our show was on at 12.45 a.m., I guess, right? Yeah. And I knew that home movies would get, would get moved around, so if you did start to have a, you know, some kind of a relationship with the show, it would change every other week. No one knew. It's on Tuesdays. No, now it's on Wednesdays. No, now it's on Wednesdays. We can't find a place for this show. No one's watching it. So I thought, if, I, if they're doing a billboard campaign for this show, I'm going to try to lock the network into keeping it in the same place just by sheer fact that they put it on a billboard. And it's like Seinfeld at 9 on Thursday nights. Exactly. Except it was Metalocalypse at 1245 on Sunday night. Yeah. It was predictable. Yeah. It, it was whatever's wh- – how topsy-turvy your life is will not be – that will not affect this – where this show shows up at the exact same it time. It must have been hard to make those first 20 episodes. It was – um, it was a, <laughs> it was a fantastic nightmare, but we got through it. And, and then by the end of the thing, it felt really good. And we were like, okay. And then, you know, at the time it was the highest premiere, highest rated premiere of adult swim because YouTube had just come out. Do you remember this? Like it just came out and we put a little thing on there, a little teaser, and it just got tons and tons of, and heavy metal was really like at a, p- a pitch point you know yeah so there were people going oh wow here's something just for us you felt like you were appealing to a underrepresented community there had not been a show for 
a comedy show driven towards heavy metal people. I mean, there had been, you know, things like Headbangers Ball. Yeah. But that was also not happening at that time, really. But this thing, we just felt like it could be its own thing. And and then hopefully, my goal was, okay, I'm going to challenge myself to write new music for every single episode. You know, every episode will have brand new score. Wow. I'll reuse a couple of things for like the tribunal sequences and the intro and this and that. But I will have to have new score and a new song or something that alludes to a song that's longer than the song. You put that demand on yourself. Yeah. And I just thought, why not? Why not make each episode special for those reasons? Some songs will be better than others. Some will be more memorable. And yeah. by the end of the season, I'm starting to understand which songs are landing with people and which, which are not. And then I thought, okay, just at the very beginning of this whole thing, I thought, okay, if, if this does work out, at the end of the season, I'd love to be able to elongate these songs and put out a record. Because you'd have... Brief versions, thirty seconds or yeah, to have like minutes, yeah, thirty seconds. seconds, nine minutes or nine seconds, um, you know, verse, chorus, guitar solo, you know, or something like bridge, maybe something that alludes to a song that exists mm-hmm. that's bigger. And then I thought, okay, I will take all this information and I will make the bigger song because I've got enough of a building block here anyway. So you'd flesh those out to full length songs, yeah, put out an album. So, um, so what happened though was in between the first and the second season, I put out a record. So I went right out of this. So here's. You're, you're color correcting. You're giving your blessing to the very last episode. I'm saying, all right, you know, as a showrunner, you're accountable for every single frame where the pennies are spent and all that stuff. And you go, okay, I've done that. And then I grab my guitars and my amps and my pedals. And I go from that day, I just load up my shitty Prius with all that stuff. And I go to a studio because at the same time I was setting up, like uh, I found a, a great guy who was going to co-produce this record with me, a great studio. The guy was Ulrich Wild and the guy who I still work with all the time and found a really cool studio, managed to talk Gene Hoagland into working with me. Who's this, you know, who's been part of death clock. And then since then everything else I've done, Galacticon and all that stuff. And just go, all right, I'm going to figure out how to make records now. And I thought this will probably be the only record I'll ever make. So I may as well throw every single song I've ever written through Death Clock on this thing. So it's like a 21-song album, and um, like a double album, basically. And then start doing pre-production, basically. I think we toured a little bit after that. We did like a mini tour, like a Test the Waters tour. Yeah, and the waters were warm. The waters were warm enough, but... but uh, but it was interesting because I don't know who it was, but it was basically like, let's do a college tour. And I was like, okay, I think we should go to rock venues because I think we can fit in. And in fact, we should probably tour with established metal bands. I bet we could probably do something really cool together because we've got something no other show has. We have a TV show and a network that's, that's faithfully plugging this whole thing. And the network wasn't sweating you about the scripts. They would like every once like a season, I'd get some kind of a call saying like, wow, let's kill this one. And I go, what is it you don't like? Let's talk about it because we're this far. Can we shift it? Can we move it? Can I offer some other solutions? And then sometimes we'd either kill it or I'd find those solutions or whatever. But they were, there was always a problem with like how quickly, I would have a month to write a home movie script and I'd get to sit there, I'd get to forget about it, come back to it, rewrite it, get delighted with a, a new take on a rewrite. With, with Metal Oculus, it was fast, 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 fast. And then you decided that it would be better as a longer show. I thought this is so this is where I thought this would be less work doing less episodes, but longer. And it was just as much, if not more difficult to do that because the show was really functioning at a a quarter hour. So you went back to that. So we went back to that. What's it about a quarter hour that is of appeal to you? 
It was one of those things. There was like this. So what you're trying to do when you're doing these quarter hours, each writer has to kind of figure out how to rationalize how to tell story in this quarter hour. And we had a lot of really cool mechanisms that can make storytelling kind of start running very quickly. We had this governmental tribunal. We had the media who's commenting on what Def Clock was doing constantly. So we can kind of get you up to speed pretty quickly. And so what we'd find out is like, okay, we've got an A and a B story for the most part. And then as the story is gaining liftoff, that's where we end it. So almost at the the peak pinnacle moment, uh, either like energy-wise or emotionally or comedically, that's where we say goodbye. That's what you said about Aqua Teen. They'd throw the story out the window. Yeah, I think that probably influenced it too. But I think ending on the beginning of the story was something that we were discovering that was working for this show. And then I was also seeing like, okay, I don't know how much more of this I can <laughs> physically do. Um, because it's, you know, it's, it's a very small group of people. So at that point it's, um, it's, yeah, it was, it was, a, it was a small group of people and we were also kind of leading into this, what I was thinking was the final part of the show. And I guess you were right. <laughs> it was very much right. Yeah. Yeah. And then it ended. Yeah. Well, we did a rock opera too. Yeah. A lot and of by the way, I had to rest for like months after that rock opera because I wrote, what, 52 minutes of solid music with no, everything had to be, like the, the rule I thought for that one was everything has to be in music form. And if you're talking, you're talking rhythmically over music. Why did you do the rock opera? Um, because after the fourth season, Lazo, uh, the network and all that stuff was like, uh, look, we're not sure what we're going to do. Like, cause the, I don't know if it was financial or what, but I know that our, our audience was increasing each season. And so I was like, well, what, when are you going to know? He's like, I don't know. So I was getting like this kind of. I'm not sure thing. And I go, well, what can we do? He's like, you going to do a special or something? And I said, yeah. And then maybe I'll end it at this special. And he said, nah, you don't want to do that. <laughs> you don't end it with a special? Or he just, you don't, you don't want to end the show. Oh. So, so go what figure. Happened? What so, happened? So but what that's happened? what happened. That's what happened. Yeah. But I didn't, I mean, I, I based on, on, on instructions left it open. With the rock opera. Yeah. And now it's still open. It's definitely, it's open forever. Like a tomb. It's like, yeah, like a tomb that's still open. Slowly just decaying. Well, imagine my surprise when I see you listed on the Adult Swim Festival. Yeah. Pretty crazy, right? How does that happen? Well, you know how we were talking about getting those phone calls? Yeah. Phone rang? Phone rang. Oh, who was, who was it this time? It was Jason DeMarco. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Jason DeMarco calls me and he says, uh, are you interested in playing Death Clock music? And I said, you know what? Yeah, I am. He caught me on a day where I was like, yeah. And I that am. was just that. That was it, yeah. And I said, well, look, I'll do it if Gene Hoagland's around. And Gene Hoagland loves Death Clock and he loves playing. And I love playing with him. And so he was available. So I said, okay. Are you sick of people asking about the end of Metalocalypse? Um. <clears throat> Not really, but it's really strange. You know, my relationship with the TV show and the audience's relationship with the TV show are two completely different things. Yeah. Because as you hear from this conversation, it sounds like it's almost a burden, right? But I'm lucky that I get to do it. I'm lucky that I got to be put in a position 
where I got to rediscover my guitar and make something out of it. Yeah. All this music school stuff all came in handy. All that stupid stuff I did, you know, at the Jingle House came in handy. All this, these comedy chops came in handy. And I'm lucky to be able to have this outlet to express myself. So I'm okay with a lot of stuff that, that happened with the show. But the audience wasn't. Because the audience was, it's like you put out a bird feeder. And they're like, okay, we got bird food each week. And then at some point you take away the bird feeder and you got a bunch of dead birds. But, but first they get very angry. And so I understand they got screwed. They were invested in this story and they spent a lot of time. They got tattoos of the show all over their bodies. So you have this whole group of people who are living in this world that they don't have, they don't have the thing that, that every relationship needs to have, which is some kind of a resolution, a conclusion, some kind of a chat about what happens after this. So many shows end poorly. Yeah. Right? Some of the... Or don't end. Or, or just don't like... End. Or just stop. like... They just stop. And you go, what happened to that show? I guess it's gone. But the, your audience, this audience... Um, it's Adult Swim's audience. Adult Swim's audience is yeah. frustrated that and with the way that it ended. Well, with the lack of the ending. The way that it didn't end. The way that it didn't end. <laughs> right. Exactly. How, how, how would you have resolved it? Had you had another season or an episode, do you have in mind what you well, would have done? Well, I mean... Or would you have ended it? Would you have continued it? I, what, I, there are two, two things that I, that I would have done. One is that I would have concluded this part of the story and either left it there and said, okay, good night, folks. Everyone, everyone knows what happens now. And or secondly, I would say, okay, now that that part of the story is over, we can just goof around and just like, what can we do that's funny? And then let it live. Well, everyone will say the door clearly is still open to such a thing because you're still in business with the network. Who's everyone? Do they have that in writing, (laughs) in the contract? No. But the fact that you would agree to perform as Death Clock at an Adult Swim event suggests that maybe you're open to it. You know, that's the first. So Jason DeMarco calls me, right? Uh And he says, he says, you know, Death Clock. And I go, look, you have to realize... And this isn't me doing this. You're opening up Pandora's box yeah. or these kinds of things, these kinds of questions are going to be. And I, I, if I had control over this thing, I would just say, do the thing I want to do, but I don't have, I mean, this is, you know, art and commerce, uh, meeting somewhere or not meeting in the middle. Mm-hmm. So, so I said, these are the questions I won't be able to answer ever. Mm-hmm. Be ready for them because they will be asked of you. What, what are the questions? What happens now with the show? Does yeah. the show come back? Does yeah. this happen? Does that happen? Uh-huh. Does that happen? How do you do it? How do you do it? What's going to happen? So, um, so I go, I don't have the answer to that. I know what the narrative would be. I know what this, that, and the other thing is. I know how the characters would feel. I know all that stuff. But beyond that, I haven't the personal power unless somebody opens up some magical suitcase and I jump inside the glowing box. So that's what, it's, that's what it would be like, a magical glowing suitcase? Isn't it always? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know if hell lives inside of that suitcase or heaven. I'm not wow. sure. It's like Pulp Fiction. But you could conceivably see yourself jumping back in. I could. Um, I, the way I think about it is I think the fans truly got screwed. Yeah. Are they, do they blame you at all? Um, oh, it's funny because I'll see people going like, you know, like I go, hey, I'm doing this over there. Like, bring Metalocalypse back. I'm like, uh-huh. Okay, so like a comment somewhere on like Instagram yeah. or whatever. Hey, I'm going to do this fun thing that has nothing to do with anything. 
bring Metalocalypse back. And they're like, why are you doing this? You're lazy doing this when you should be finishing the show. Like, I'm like, I'm not going to get into explaining how this works. So uh, people remind me often that, they're, uh, that they want more. And I don't know how many people that represents, but I know that there were a bunch of people that were quite dissatisfied. It's a very rock and roll thing, right? To have a band, I mean, the Beatles broke up. What yeah, would yeah. the Beatles be doing now? Right, exactly. Know? So, yeah, the question is like, uh, you know, the band is back together, uh-huh. but the show is in the, in the same right. place. Some meta. I know, isn't it funny? But why do you break up a band so you can get them back together? Right. Who knows? I know that I'm looking forward to playing my guitar. Again, I uh, really enjoy it. And I like playing this music with this group of people. And I like doing a job in front of people. And I like doing a good job in front of people. How many guitars do you have? I have a lot. I have How like many? probably over 60. 60 guitars? Yeah. I have a lot of guitars. What's your practice rig setup? Um, what do you play on when you're just rehearsing at home? Uh, lately I've been playing on a gold top Les Paul custom shop reissue. So it's like, just basically why not play my best sounding guitar? Mm -hmm. So I'll play that. I'll plug it into this amp that they don't make anymore called, uh, Alchemist, which is like a Bogner line six kind of a thing. If you're a guitar player, you're probably excited. If you're not a guitar player, you're turning off the podcast. But, um, but I play through this one amp and I like it and I just, I'm constantly working on getting better. Uh, guitar. What's your uh, stage rig setup? My stage rig setup. Yeah. Um, well, I have a. I don't know. I'm. I'm actually kind of working through what this next one's going to be. Uh-huh. But before, it's been like you know, classic tube amps like Marshalls, high yeah. gain Marshalls. I had a Joe Satriani Marshall for the last show that I did with uh, Death Clock. Um, I may use that. I may use. I don't know. There's so many amps out there and so many pedals. So I use a lot of basically i i need to have a really loud guitar and then like a lead sound that i like a lot so i need like an un like a just straight no effects distorted guitar for all the rhythm parts and then a little bit of delay and a little bit of an eq curve for my solo so it's like two sounds basically and then like a wah somewhere and and, and uh, uh if i'm gonna do the uh death clock theme song i have to have a whammy pedal if you do the Death Clock Which means song. I'm going to do. I mean, have a whammy pedal with me. What was the last concert you saw? Oh, what did I see? Oh, I saw Macedon like a couple of weeks ago. Mm. So they were in town. So, so Braun and I, uh, I love all of Macedon, but Braun and I pal around a lot. Uh, and like, he'll, like my favorite thing is when he's in town, he comes over to my house and we drink beers and watch stupid movies. And it's really fun. That's nice. It really is. We'll like watch Dune every single time or I'll go, hey, have you seen this? And then like uh, I'll send him a movie or he'll send me a movie or something. So he's a, a real movie lover and just likes talking about – all I want to do is sit around and talk about movies. What's the, what's the show that uh, blew your mind that you went to in, in the course of your history? Um, there's shows where I'm like Cannibal Corpse played for 45 minutes and that was just – that was there's so much energy in that room, like at the old Universal Amphitheater. That's not like Harry Potter Land, I guess. But I remember seeing them a long time ago, and just going, "Oh, this this is undeniable energy. This is so cool, and the music is so difficult, and there's so much punk rock inside of this death metal, and it's just it's really exciting and dangerous. And that's the coolest thing about heavy metal is if you buy a ticket to a show, you're in the club. 
it's not like you have to go through an, an initiation process or anything. Yeah. Heavy metal is like, come, we're open, please. I saw you guys play at center stage, Death Clock. Oh, yeah. And it was so much more than I expected it to be. First of all, it was really funny. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, first of all, it was really loud. Yes. Second of all, yes. it was really fucking good. Like, technically great, entertaining. And also, it was really funny. And I didn't expect it to be funny. I don't know yeah. what I expected, but you yeah, had the yeah. screen, sh- and you had it synced up. Yeah, that's all. Well, and it was great. That's all like a bunch of animators and and you know the team I was talking about before working together to build something that feels like honestly I was just like this should be like a show that you could see at Universal Studios or something like like right. like you know like the Terminator like Two show or a ride. Yeah, it should feel like a ride. It should feel like again. I kept going to Walt Disney all the time as influence for this show, and I thought the live show should be no different. It should be. You should be in a place where, like, I don't know how serious to take this group of people on stage. Is this a joke? Is Are, are they serious? Because I feel both feelings at the same time. Right. So I like putting people in that position of not knowing how to take it. And I think that's one great thing that the show can do is have these musical moments that are serious as a heart attack and then, like, cut it with insanely stupid comedy. Brendan Small. That's me. Thanks for coming on. That's fun talking to you. Music from this episode of the Adult Swim Podcast is a song called Living in America by Dom from his album Sun Bronze Greek Gods. Visit adultswim.com slash podcast for links to some of the things Brendan and I were just talking about. And send your requests, comments, criticisms, whatever, adultswimpodcast at gmail.com. And thank you for listening. <laughs>